Welcome to Passion. For more information about Passion, please visit us online at www.passionchurch.tv. Now let's join the service already in progress. God is touching lives, changing hearts, moving on your behalf to make a difference in the world. Amen. Pastor Steve this morning is in South Carolina along with Pastor Worthy. They're at a, a conference uh, the last couple of days, and I'm just praying God moves in their hearts and gives them a time of rest and also at the time refills him. You know, he's one of the most creative people you will ever meet. And uh, I just pray God's anointing on his life, safe traveling as they start back later this afternoon. Amen. So this morning, we're excited to have Kevin Richardson. Kevin is from Southwestern Christian uh, College University, and uh, he is the Vice President of uh, Development. And I want to show, show of hands, if Southwestern, if you went to Southwestern, have kids have gone to Southwestern currently in Southwestern, would you raise your hand? How many? Look at all those hands. That's how important Southwestern Christian University is to this church to this city, and to the kingdom of God. Let's give a warm welcome to Kevin Richardson as he comes and ministers to us the word this morning. Good morning. I can't tell you how excited I am to be here today. Let me tell you what an honor it is uh, to be in Pastor Steve's church uh, you know how wonderful your pastoral leadership is. I want you to know you are not the only ones who know how wonderful they are. I've had the privilege over the last year and a half since I've uh, moved here to Oklahoma City to spend a little bit of time with your pastor. He has always uh, been so kind, so encouraging to me. Um, he's shared his wisdom with me, and I have listened to what he said, and uh, I appreciate him so much. Uh, Woody and Jesse, I love them. You have so many people here that are associated with uh, Southwestern Christian. I know I'm a guest today, but I feel right at home, and I'm so glad to be able to be here. Uh, I know we have a number of uh, graduates. I would call them students, but they're no longer students. They just graduated, crossed the line yesterday, May the 4th, be with you yesterday, got their degrees. Um, I know some of, anybody here graduate with honors? Magna cum laude, magna cum Look at that. Do you, I am, we're standing in the presence of greatness. Summa magna, summa cum laude. That's impressive, in case you didn't know that. Four point? Right, okay. See, give her a hand. I, I did not graduate summa cum laude, magna cum laude. I graduated, thank the Lord. Um, but I graduated. <laughs> You know, at, uh, at Southwestern, you always can find a reason for a hallelujah. And we are a Pentecostal university, so we can always find a reason. I heard a story about a student who showed up for chapel, um, walked in, sat next to a friend, and a friend kind of whispered in his ear, and, and then he goes, oh, there's a woman sitting behind him, and she, you know, tapped him on the shoulder and said, what's, what's wrong? 
Uh, I just found out who the chapel speaker is. He's one of my professors. I have to listen to him lecture all the time, and he is the most boring man alive. The woman looked at the young man and said, Well, um, do you know who I am? And he said, No. He said, Well, I am the speaker's wife. The young man thought for a moment and then turned around and looked at her and said, Well, do you know who I am? And she said, No. To which the young man replied, Hallelujah. I don't know if you're aware of it, but the reason Southwestern Christian University exists is to build the church. That's what we're there for. It's not just to produce uh, young adults and give them degrees. That's not really what it's about. That's part of the process, but it's not really what it's all about. We want our graduates, whether they're Bible majors or business majors, to be builders of the church to be men and women who take part in constructing God's kingdom, to build the church. And so it begs the question, what is the Lord's church? What does the Lord's church really look like? If that's what we're about, is helping to build the Lord's church, what should that look like? Is the Lord's church a grand stone cathedral filled with stained glass? Or is the Lord's church a house church with a group of huddled believers gathering around a single copy of Scripture? What does the Lord's church look like? One of the largest churches in the United States is Willow Creek Community Church, located outside of Chicago, Illinois. It was started in 1975 and now averages around 20,000 in attendance. The church was established to reach non-Christians. That was the sole purpose. They wanted to reach people who weren't being reached by anyone else. To those who, for one reason or another, had quit going to church. They deliberately tried to avoid doing many of the traditional ways of doing things. They were one of the first churches to implement using drama, to begin using multimedia, to begin singing songs, uh, worship songs that were contemporary music, to use creative messages that connect with people's lives. Their services on Saturday and Sunday were specifically designed for those who did not know Christ, for those who were outside of the traditional church's influence, people who did not know what it meant to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, of course, Saved people were welcome on Saturday and Sunday, but those services weren't really for them. It was their Wednesday and Thursday night services, their Bible studies, where the family of God would come together uh, uh, for mutual instruction and inspiration and fellowship and worship. Now, let me be honest with you. I, I don't agree with everything that they've done. I'd probably do things a little bit differently. But the one thing that they do that I support 110% is they unashamedly preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. They preach Jesus as Savior and Lord. They exist to reach the lost. And as a result, the congregation has grown and grown dramatically. Now I want to contrast that with the story of another church, a church that will remain nameless this morning, 
It's a church located in Upper Manhattan, New York. A church that through the 19, early 1900s, through the 1960s, was a powerful witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church was one of the largest in the nation at that time, with over 2,000 active members. But now, today, if you were to walk into that sanctuary, there would be fewer than 100 people present. Why? Well, in recent years, a subtle change crept in. Their emphasis switched from presenting the gospel to helping the homeless. They set up soup kitchens in the church. They began a massive feeding program for those in need. And now, you know, when we look at that at first glance, we think, well, that's a great thing to do. We need to be helping the homeless. I think Jesus would have us do that. It is a wonderful Christian thing to do. And they should be praised for doing so. But in this church, prayers are never offered when the homeless are being fed. The name of Jesus is never mentioned. There's never a sermon, there's never a prayer, there's never a, a word of Scripture spoken because they're concerned that someone might be offended. That one of those individuals they're helping might resent it. And so while providing them bread, they deny them the bread of life. They made no effort to communicate a Savior who forgives sin, who changes lives, who frees us from the bondage of our sin. And as a result, they've discovered that the same people keep walking through those lines day after day, year after year, getting their bodies fed, but their lives are never changed. The church was feeding their bodies, but starving their souls. And now, the church itself is almost dead. These are two very different churches. Both of them are very busy in what they're trying to do. But one is thriving and one is dying. Why? What is the church supposed to be? What is the church supposed to do? To help answer those questions, we're going to look this morning at the first church the first church, its beginning, its nucleus, its mission, and its promise. First, let's look at the beginning of the church. The beginning of the church. The first thing we need to realize is that the church came from God. The church came from God. From the beginning of time, before the foundations of the world, God had in his mind the church. This church. He knew that we would be here this morning. He had us in mind before the foundation of the world. And he promised that he would build his church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And so Jesus came. He came. He walked among us. He performed miracles. He taught us. He lived an example before us. He died. He was buried. He was resurrected. And the church was established to continue his work. And the church begins on the day of Pentecost. It's in the second chapter of the book of Acts that we read about its beginning. The first chapter tells us about Jesus meeting with his apostles on the Mount of Olives and telling them that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
And he also tells them that they are to wait in Jerusalem. Now, do you remember, what did he want them to wait there for? I'm asking for an answer. It's not a rhetorical question. What did he want them to wait in Jerusalem for? Power. Power. Power from on high. And then right before them, he ascends into heaven. So they go to Jerusalem. Acts chapter 1, verse 14 tells us, they all join together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brother. They're there. Now, starting with the first verse of the second chapter of Acts, we read about the beginning of the church. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven, when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one of them heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us hears them in his own na native language? Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some of them, however, made fun of them and said, They've had too much wine. Now in the midst of all this excitement, in the midst of all of this confusion, the Apostle Peter spoke up. He got the crowd's attention and he said to them, Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And beginning with those words, he began to preach to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. He told them, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. You, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross, but God raised him from the dead. Listen to verses 36 through 41. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, it says they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to the church that day. They had no sanctuary. They had no sound system, no lights. 
They had no formal Sunday school. They had no Christian university from which to be trained. They had no formal curriculum, no written curriculum. And yet with little of the things that we consider essential today, but heavily armed with prayer and baptized in the power of the Holy Spirit, they were able to change the world of their day. I think we need to be reminded of the words that Peter spoke. He said, this promise is for you. This promise is for you. It's for you and your children. It's for all whom the Lord our God will call. We are inheritance. We are the inheritors of that promise. We have that power, that promise of power of the Holy Spirit available to us. The church was birthed in the mind of God and empowered by the Holy Spirit. That is the beginning of of the church. Secondly, let's look at the nucleus of the church. Who were those that made up the nucleus or the core, this core group of the early church? Who were the leaders? Well, as Jesus prepares to give them the Great Commission, Matthew tells us in verse 16 of Matthew 28, then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. I want us to take just a minute and take a closer look at these 11 disciples. And as you look at them, I, I think that you'll find in many ways they're much like us. The first thing I want us to see about these disciples is that they were ordinary men. They were just ordinary men. They were fishermen, a tax collector, men from the hill country of Galilee. There is no indication anywhere in Scripture that any one of them were rich or influential or highly educated. They were just ordinary guys. Now later on, there were some that joined the church that were rich and influential. Saul of Tarsus, who became known as Paul, would fall into that category. He's a guy who had a great education. He came from an influential family, and he was well-respected among his people before he became a Christian. But we also need to remember that Saul had to be humbled before God, before God could really use him. Let me tell you something. I, I work for a Christian university, Southwestern Christian University. I believe in education. I have a bachelor's degree. I have a master's degree. I'm strongly considering going back for a doctorate. God help me if I do. I'm strongly considering it. I believe in education. We need educated people. Education is not essential for the kingdom of God. Now, I still want you to come and pay tuition, okay? I want you to come to Southwestern. We're doing great stuff there. But if you don't have a college degree, that doesn't mean that God can't use you. And just because you have a college degree doesn't mean God will. Before World War II, the most educated nation in the world was Germany. And it was Germany 
that let Hitler rise to power. Education does not equal wisdom. The first thing we notice about the men who made up the core of the church is that they were ordinary. And that ought to encourage us because that's what we are. We're ordinary folks too. Secondly, we notice that these men were imperfect. Matthew 28 verse 17 says, When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Don't you just love the honesty of Scripture? I mean, it never tries to gloss over the imperfections uh, of its key figures. I mean, it, the Bible tells us that David was an adulterer. The Bible tells us about the flaws of all the other prominent people in Scripture. It never tries to gloss over them. And here, they were meeting Jesus after the resurrection. They can look at him and see the nail prints in his hands and in his feet. They can see where the spear pierced his side. And it says, in spite of all of that, some of them doubted. These men, these pillars of the church were far from perfect. We tend to hold them up as these superhuman being, superhuman uh, human beings. Well, let me tell you something. They are just like us. Simon the Zealot today, we'd probably call him a redneck. Simon Peter was always sticking his foot in his mouth. You never knew what he was going to say. James and John had the problem with their ego. They always thought they had to be first. And then there was Thomas, the doubter. No, the people who made up the core of the church, the nucleus of the church, were far from perfect. And that ought to be encouraging to us. Those men who we hold up in such high regard were sinners saved by grace, just like you and me. They stumbled and struggled just like you and me. Let me tell you something. Just because you're struggling doesn't mean you're disqualified from ministry. Just because you've stumbled doesn't mean that God can't use you. They were imperfect, just like us. They were messed up, just like us. It ought to be encouraging. Every one of us has our struggles. We all have our areas of weakness. And we are in good company with the disciples. But they had one more characteristic which made all the difference. They were ordinary. They were imperfect. But they loved Jesus and wanted to obey him. Verse 16 says that they went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. In analyzing these guys, we see they're ordinary. We see they've got lots of imperfections. But we also see that they loved Jesus and desired to obey him. They recognized him alone as the Son of God who had risen from the grave. And so whatever he commanded them to do, they sought to do it. Whatever he told them to do, they did their best to get it done. They did their very best to put him first in their lives. And guys, this is what the church is. The church is made up of ordinary, imperfect people who desire to put Jesus first and obey him. That's us. 
We are the church. You can look at the person next to you and say, you're ordinary, and it's okay. You can look at the person behind you or in front of you and say, you know what? You're messed up, and it's okay. Because the key ingredient is that we love Jesus and do our best to obey Him. The third thing I want us to see is the mission of the church. The mission of the church. Matthew 28, 19 begins with these words. Therefore, go. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. In the 13th century, there was a man named Niccolo Polo. He was the father of Marco Polo. I'm sure you're all familiar with him if you've ever been in a swimming pool. Niccolo Polo traveled to China, traveled from Venice to China, had a chance to stand before the throne of the great emperor Kublai Khan, the emperor of all of China. Kublai Khan had never seen a European before, and he was so impressed with Niccolo's character, with his faith, that he sent back a letter with Niccolo to go to Rome, to the Pope, asking for the church to send teachers, men who could come and teach his people about faith in Jesus Christ. So Niccolo did just that. He went back, delivered this Letter signed by the emperor Kublai Khan begging for teachers to come and teach his people about Jesus. But the church at that time, it was during the dark ages, the church was so turned upside down by internal political upheaval, internal conflict, that no one paid much attention to his request. In the end, only two men were sent to China. And because the journey was so long and so difficult, they lost heart and turned around, returned to Rome without ever making it to the emperor's palace. And so, because of the failure of the church of that day, Kublai Khan turned to Buddhism, and that has been the predominant religion in that area ever since. Friends, we need to remember that the mission of the church is to make disciples of all nations. We are to make disciples of all people, whether they live around the corner or around the world. That's why we exist. That is our purpose, is to share the love of Jesus Christ with a lost and dying world. That is the mission and the purpose of the church. Finally, I want us to look at the promise of the church. The promise that Jesus gives us. Jesus said, surely I am with you always. Surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. You know, to the early Christians, this was some, these were some of the most precious words that Jesus had ever spoken. Every time they gathered together for prayer and worship, they knew that soldiers might burst through the door, come in, and arrest them at any moment. They had seen, seen their friends killed. They had seen their friends 
tortured. They'd heard their cries of pain just because they were believers in Jesus. And so when Jesus said, I am with you, even in moments of persecution, I am with you, even in moments of pain, those were very precious, precious words. They probably are not that precious to most of us today. We don't face persecution on a daily basis. But they might very well become more precious in the future. You know, more and more, I see a widening of the gap between what the church is supposed to be and what the world is. I see a widening of the gap between the philosophy of the church, the nature of the church, and the philosophy and nature of the world. Already we're seeing recognition that God is being eradicated from our schools and public assemblies, prayer, Bible reading, nativity scenes, Christmas stories, even the mention of God are no longer welcome in public gatherings. Did you know that there are branches of the government that consider the church a threat to our nation? They consider evangelical Christianity a threat to our nation, so much so that we're mentioned in the same sentences as radical Islamic terrorists. The church needs to be ready. Jesus says, I will be with you. I will be with you. No matter what happens between now and the time I come for you, I want you to know that I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Now, I don't know how you perceive the church. I don't know whether you picture a, a little church where just you and a few of your friends can gather together, or if you see a church where thousands of people come together and lift up the name of Jesus. But I do know this. The church does not solely exist for its members. The church does not solely exist for those of us who are already here. The church exists to reach the lost. The church exists to be Jesus' hands and feet in a lost and dying generation. And the moment we begin to turn our sights inward, the moment we begin to think that the church is just for us, about meeting our needs, giving us what we want, friends, we are no longer the church. We're a social club. It is distraction that leads to death when we become focused on ourselves and our needs, or when we become focused on worthy causes, but without the gospel, we are no longer the church. We have stopped fulfilling our purpose, and we have walked out on God's promise. There is no outside force that can destroy the church. God said, I will build my church, and even the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. No, it is us. It's those of us inside the church that kill the church. It's when we become distracted. It's when we become caught up in petty issues and things that don't matter. It is internal rot that kills the church. We exist for a lost world. We exist to give ourselves away. We exist to touch a world 
that doesn't know Jesus Christ and to show them the way to be saved from their sin, to live life abundantly and to live for eternity. In the Greek islands near the home of Hippocrates, the founder of modern medicine, you'll find an old olive tree that dates all the way back to his day. That would make this tree nearly 2,400 years old. The trunk of this olive tree is huge, but the tree is almost completely hollow. The few branches that remain are held up by stakes that are driven in the ground, but every year the tree manages to produce a couple of leaves and occasionally will produce an olive or two. And so I guess technically you could say the olive tree is still alive but it has long since stopped fulfilling its primary purpose. It's now simply an ancient tree for tourists to come and see and get their pictures taken with. The church should never be like that. There are grand cathedrals all over Europe Stone buildings filled with stained glass, monuments to a faith that once was. Hollow, empty. Let Passion Church never become a relic. Let Passion Church live in the purpose and the promise of God. We are the body of Christ. We are the family of God. And we have been entrusted with the message of salvation for all whom the Lord our God will call. For all who will claim Jesus as their Savior and their Lord. It is our job to remember that our beginning was with the power of the Spirit. To remember that at our core, it's not about talent, it's not about wealth, it's not about influence. It's about loving Jesus and obeying Him. To remember that our mission is not about just doing good deeds. Don't get me wrong, it's a great thing to give a person a piece of bread. But what good does it really do if we give them a piece of bread and deny them the bread of life? There's nothing wrong with giving someone a cup of water, but what good does it really do if we give them a cup of water and deny them access to the living water? It is our mission and our purpose 
to lead people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And when we do that, when we live in our purpose, then we live in the promise of God. And God will never leave us. He will never forsake us. We don't have to try and do it on our own. We don't have to depend on our own strength, on our own creativity, on our own resources, because we have access to all of heaven. The heavens will open up and empower us and enable us to do things beyond our own ability. When we live in the purpose of God, we live in the promise of God. And so this morning, I want to ask you, are you ready? Are you ready to walk in power? Are you ready to not depend on your own strength? Because trust me, you don't have enough. Are you ready to love Jesus and obey Him? Are you ready to fulfill your purpose and walk in His promise? Each one of you here today, you know at least one person that doesn't know Jesus. You know at least one person who needs to be here in this service next week. Let me tell you who mine is. The person that's on my heart, who I pray for, is my neighbor. Mr. Shrethran. Great family. Uh, their son, Scott, comes over and plays with my boys. He's a great kid. But the Shrethrans are Hindus. Don't know Jesus. Now, the challenge with Hindus is they'll happily add Jesus to their pantheon of gods. The challenge is to get them to acknowledge, to see that Jesus isn't just a God. He is the God. He is the way, the truth, the life. And I pray for that family. I pray for God to give me the words to speak. That God will prepare their hearts. That the Holy Spirit will work in their lives and give me the opportunity to lead them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Who is it for you? Maybe it's a classmate. Somebody that walks the halls with you at your school. Maybe it's a coworker somebody that you visit with in front of the coffee pot at work. Maybe it's a family member. Someone you've known your whole life. Maybe you're like me and it's a neighbor who lives next door or down the street. If you're not Jesus to them, who else will be? If you don't share God's love with them, who else is going to do it? I don't know about you, but I still believe that Jesus could come back at any moment, any day, any time. And when he comes back, that window of opportunity, that window of hope, that window of grace is closed. That window is closed. The opportunity is gone. I don't want the Shrethrans to miss their opportunity to find Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I don't want your classmates. I don't want your coworker. I don't want your family member or your neighbor to miss their opportunity either. But I can't talk to them. Only you can. Are you ready to fulfill your purpose? It's only then that you'll live in his promise. Will the musicians please come back? Today. If you're willing to make that commitment and say, Kevin, 
I know who that person is. Maybe more than one. God's laid that person on my heart, and I make a commitment to be Jesus to them this week. If you're ready, ready to fulfill your purpose, I want you to stand. Just stand right where you are. If you're willing to fulfill your purpose, if you are ready to be Jesus to that person in your life, stand. Jesus says, I will be with you. God will give you the power you need to fulfill your purpose. Maybe you say, Kevin, I'm not ready to fulfill my purpose. I am struggling. I am all too aware of my imperfections today. I am all too aware of how ordinary I am today. Maybe you've stumbled. Maybe you're struggling. And rather than God's power to fulfill your purpose, you need God's peace. You need God to restore you. You need God to pick you up and wipe the dust off your knees and help you to walk again. If you need God's peace in your life, would you stand today? Jesus says, I am with you too. There's no sin too big for me. There's no struggle too hard for me. Jesus will give you peace right smack dab in the middle of the storm you're facing. That's his promise. Heavenly Father, I thank you for every person standing this morning. God, I thank you because your power is available. Your power is available to enable them to do great things. You said to your disciples, these things and greater will you do in my name. God, they can live in that promise too. You will be with them. You will empower them. You will enable them to build the church. To build the Lord's church. To build the kingdom of God. God, I pray that this week, before this time, next Sunday, God, that they will be given the opportunity to speak into that person's life. That person that's in their mind and in their heart. God, I pray that you will open up a door to give them a chance to be Jesus to them. Whether it's just a word of encouragement, a passage of Scripture, maybe they'll be given the opportunity to pray with them over something they're struggling with, or maybe it'll just be inviting them to church next Sunday. God, I pray that you will empower them, give them the boldness and the courage to step out in faith and fulfill their purpose. Father, for those that are struggling today, they don't feel powerful at all. They're all too aware of their ordinariness. They're all too aware of their imperfections and how messed up they are because they are in the mess right now. God, you are there for them as well. Jesus, you said, I will be with you to them as well. And God, I pray that you will give them peace. Lord, that you will empower them to make it through this struggle. God, that you will forgive them of their sins and restore them 
that you'll restore what the enemy has taken. And God, let them begin to walk in your power, in your presence, and in your purpose and promise again. Father, I pray above all that you will be glorified. That you'll be glorified in the lives of every person who calls Passion Church their home. Lord, that you'll be glorified every Sunday when they gather together for worship here. That Passion Church will continue to be the Lord's church. That Passion Church will continue to reach the lost and dying. That Passion Church will continue to be a light in the darkness. We ask all these things, God, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, that you would be glorified in this place and in our lives. Amen and amen. Thank you. It's been a privilege to have you join us for this time of ministry. To find more passion resources or to make a donation online, visit www.passionchurch.tv. Remember, you can't live without passion.